Section 18 of The Rover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Theoden Humphrey. The Rover by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 16, Part 2. While the secretary was ripping open with a penknife the cover of the dispatches, Lord Nelson took Captain Vincent out into the stern gallery. The quiet and sunshiny morning had the added charm of a cool, light breeze, and the victory, under her three topsails and lower staysails, was moving slowly to the southward in the midst of the scattered fleet, carrying for the most part the same sail as the Admiral. Only far away two or three ships could be seen covered with canvas trying to close with the flag. Captain Vincent noted with satisfaction that the first lieutenant of the Amelia had been obliged to brace by his afteryards in order not to overrun the admiral's quarter. "'Why!' exclaimed Lord Nelson suddenly, after looking at the sloop for a moment. "'You have that tartan in tow!' "'I thought that your lordship would perhaps like to see a forty-ton lateen craft which has led such a chase to, I dare say, the fastest sloop in His Majesty's service.' "'How did it all begin?' asked the Admiral, continuing to look at the Amelia. "'As I have already hinted to your lordship, certain information came in my way,' began Captain Vincent, who did not think it necessary to enlarge upon that part of the story. "'This tartan, which is not very different to look at from the other tartans along the coast between Set and Genoa, had started from a cove on the Gion Peninsula. An old man with a white head of hair was entrusted with the service.' and really they could have found nobody better. He came round Cape Esterel, intending to pass through the Hiera roadstead. Apparently he did not expect to find the Amelia in his way, and it was there that he made his only mistake. If he had kept on his course, I would probably have taken no more notice of him than of two other craft that were in sight then. But he acted suspiciously by hauling up for the battery on Porquerolles, this maneuver, in connection with the information of which I spoke, decided me to overhaul him and see what he had on board. Captain Vincent then related concisely the episodes of the chase. I assure your lordship that I never gave an order with greater reluctance than to open musketry fire on that craft. But the old man had given such proofs of his seamanship and determination that there was nothing else for it. Why, at the very moment he had the Amelia alongside of him, he still made a most clever attempt to prolong the chase. There were only a few minutes of daylight left, and in the darkness we might very well have lost him. Considering that they all could have saved their lives simply by striking their sails on deck, I cannot refuse them my admiration, and especially to the white-haired man. The admiral, who had been all the time looking absently at the Amelia, keeping her station with a tartan in tow, said, "'You have a very smart little ship, Vincent. Very fit for the work I have given you to do. French build, isn't she?' "'Yes, my lord. They are great shipbuilders.' "'You don't seem to hate the French, Vincent,' said the admiral, smiling faintly. "'Not that kind, my lord,' said Captain Vincent, with a bow. "'I detest their political principles,' and the characters of their public men. But your lordship will admit that for courage and determination we could not have found worthier adversaries anywhere on this globe. I never said they were to be despised, said Lord Nelson. Resource, courage, yes. 
If that Toulon fleet gives me the slip, all our squadrons from Gibraltar to Brest will be in jeopardy. Why don't they come out and be done with it? Don't I keep far enough out of their way? he cried. Vincent remarked the nervous agitation of the frail figure, with a concern augmented by a fit of coughing which came on the admiral. He was quite alarmed by its violence. He watched the commander-in-chief in the Mediterranean choking and gasping so helplessly that he felt compelled to turn his eyes away from the painful spectacle. But he noticed also how quickly Lord Nelson recovered from the subsequent exhaustion. "'This is anxious work, Vincent,' he said. "'It is killing me. I aspire to repose somewhere in the country, in the midst of fields, out of reach of the sea and the admiralty, and dispatches and orders, and responsibility, too. I have just been finishing a letter to tell them at home I have hardly enough breath in my body to carry me on from day to day. But I am like that white-headed man you admire so much, Vincent, he pursued, with a weary smile. I will stick to my task, till perhaps some shot from the enemy puts an end to everything. Let us see what there may be in those papers you have brought on board. The secretary in the cabin had arranged them in separate piles. What is it all about? asked the admiral, beginning again to pace restlessly up and down the cabin. At the first glance, the most important, my lord, are the orders for marine authorities in Corsica and Naples to make certain dispositions in view of an expedition to Egypt. "'I always thought so,' said the Admiral, his eye gleaming at the attentive countenance of Captain Vincent. "'This is a smart piece of work on your part, Vincent. I can do no better than send you back to your station. Yes, Egypt, the East. Everything points that way,' he soliloquized under Vincent's eyes, while the secretary, picking up the papers with care, rose quietly and went out to have them translated and to make an abstract for the Admiral.' "'And yet, who knows?' exclaimed Lord Nelson, standing still for a moment. "'But the blame or the glory must be mine alone. "'I will seek counsel from no man.' "'Captain Vincent felt himself forgotten, invisible, "'less than a shadow in the presence of a nature "'capable of such vehement feelings. "'How long can he last?' he asked himself with sincere concern. The admiral, however, soon remembered his presence, and at the end of another ten minutes, Captain Vincent left the victory, feeling, like all officers who approached Lord Nelson, that he had been speaking with a personal friend, and with a renewed devotion for the great sea officer's soul dwelling in the frail body of the commander-in-chief of His Majesty's ships in the Mediterranean. While he was being pulled back to his ship, a general signal went up in the victory for the fleet to form line, as convenient, ahead and astern of the admiral, followed by another to the Amelia to part company. Vincent accordingly gave his orders to make sail, and, directing the master to shape a course for Cape Sissier, he went down into his cabin. He had been up nearly the whole of the last three nights, and he wanted to get a little sleep. His slumbers, however, were short and disturbed. Early in the afternoon, he found himself broad awake and reviewing in his mind the events of the day before. The order to shoot three brave men in cold blood 
terribly distasteful at the time, was lying heavily on him. Perhaps he had been impressed by Peyrol's white head, his obstinacy to escape him, the determination shown to the very last minute, by something in the whole episode that suggested a more than common devotion to duty and a spirit of daring defiance. With his robust health, simple good nature, and sanguine temperament touched with a little irony, Captain Vincent was a man of generous feelings and of easily moved sympathies. Yet, he reflected, they have been asking for it. There could be only one end to that affair. But the fact remains that they were defenseless and unarmed, and particularly harmless-looking, and at the same time as brave as any. That old chap now. He wondered how much of exact truth there was in Simons's tale of adventure. He concluded that the facts must have been true, but that Simons's interpretation of them made it extraordinarily difficult to discover what really there was under all that. That craft certainly was fit for blockade running. Lord Nelson had been pleased. Captain Vincent went on deck with the kindliest feelings towards all men, alive and dead. The afternoon had turned out very fine. The British fleet was just out of sight, with the exception of one or two stragglers under a press of canvas. A light breeze, in which only the Amelia could travel at five knots, hardly ruffled the profundity of the blue waters, basking in the warm tenderness of the cloudless sky. To south and west the horizon was empty, except for two specks very far apart, of which one shone white like a bit of silver, and the other appeared black like a drop of ink. Captain Vincent, with his purpose firm in his mind, felt at peace with himself. As he was easily accessible to his officers, his first lieutenant ventured a question, to which Captain Vincent replied. He looks very thin and worn out, but I don't think he is as ill as he thinks he is. I am sure you all would like to know that his lordship is pleased with our yesterday's work. Those papers were of some importance, you know, and generally with the Amelia. It was a queer chase, wasn't it, he went on, that Tartan was clearly and unmistakably running away from us. But she never had a chance against the Amelia. During the latter part of that speech, the first lieutenant glanced astern as if asking himself how long Captain Vincent proposed to drag that Tartan behind the Amelia. The two keepers in her wondered also as to when they would be permitted to get back on board their ship. Simons, who was one of them, declared that he was sick and tired of steering the blamed thing. Moreover, the company on board made him uncomfortable, for Simons was aware that in pursuance of Captain Vincent's orders, Mr. Bolt had had the three dead Frenchmen carried into the cuddy, which he afterwards secured with an enormous padlock that apparently belonged to it, and had taken the key on board the Amelia. As to one of them, Simons's unforgiving verdict was that it would have served him right to be thrown ashore for crows to peck his eyes out. And anyhow, he could not understand why he should have been turned into the coxswain of a floating hearse and be damned to it, he grumbled interminably. Just about sunset, which is the time of burials at sea, the Amelia was hove to, and, the rope being manned, the tartan was brought alongside, and her two keepers ordered on board their ship. 
Captain Vincent, leaning over with his elbows on the rail, seemed lost in thought. At last the first lieutenant spoke. "'What are we going to do with that tartan, sir? Our men are on board.' "'We are going to sink her by gunfire,' declared Captain Vincent suddenly. "'His ship makes a very good coffin for a seaman, "'and those men deserve better than to be thrown overboard to roll on the waves. "'Let them rest quietly at the bottom of the sea, "'in the craft to which they had stuck so well.' "'The lieutenant, making no reply, waited for some more positive order. "'Every eye on the ship was turned on the captain.' But Captain Vincent said nothing, and seemed unable or unwilling to give it yet. He was feeling vaguely that in all his good intentions there was something wanting. "'Ah, Mr. Bolt,' he said, catching sight of the master's mate in the waist. "'Did they have a flag on board that craft?' "'I think she had a tiny bit of ensign when the chase began, sir, but it must have been blown away. It is not at the end of her main yard now.' He looked over the side. The halyards are rove, though, he added. We must have a French ensign somewhere on board, said Captain Vincent. Certainly, sir, struck in the master, who was listening. Well, Mr. Bolt, said Captain Vincent, you have had most to do with all this. Take a few men with you, bend the French ensign on the halyards, and sway his main yard to the masthead. He smiled at all the faces turned towards him. After all, they never surrendered, and by heavens, gentlemen, we will let them go down with their colors flying. A profound but not disapproving silence reigned over the decks of the ship while Mr. Bolt, with three or four hands, was busy executing the order. Then suddenly above the top-gallant rail of the Amelia appeared the upper curve of a lateen yard with a tricolor drooping from the point. A subdued murmur from all hands greeted this apparition. At the same time, Captain Vincent ordered the line holding the tartan alongside to be cast off, and the main yard of the Amelia to be swung round. The sloop, shooting ahead of her prize, left her stationary on the sea, then putting the helm up, ran back abreast of her on the other side. The port bow gun was ordered to fire around, aiming well forward. That shot, however, went just over, taking the foremast out of the tartan. The next was more successful, striking the little hull between wind and water, and going out well under water on the other side. A third was fired, as the men said, just for luck, and that too took effect, a splintered hole appearing at the bow. After that the guns were secured, and the Amelia, with no brace being touched, was brought to her course towards Cape Sissier. All hands on board of her, with their backs to the sunset sky, clear like a pale topaz above the hard blue gem of the sea, watched the tartan give a sudden dip, followed by a slow, unchecked dive. At last the tricolor flag alone remained visible for a tense and interminable moment, pathetic and lonely, in the center of a brimful horizon. All at once it vanished, like a flame blown upon, bringing to the beholders the sense of having been left face to face with an immense, suddenly created solitude. On the decks of the Amelia, a low murmur died out. When Lieutenant Réal sailed away with the Toulon fleet on the great strategical cruise which was to end in the Battle of Trafalgar, Madame Réal returned with her aunt 
to her hereditary house at Escampa Bar. She had only spent a few weeks in town, where she was not much seen in public. The lieutenant and his wife lived in a little house near the western gate, and the lieutenant's official position, though he was employed on the staff to the last, was not sufficiently prominent to make her absence from official ceremonies at all remarkable. But this marriage was an object of mild interest in naval circles. Those, mostly men, who had seen Madame Réal at home, told stories of her dazzling complexion, of her magnificent black eyes, of her personal and attractive strangeness, and of the Arlesian costume she insisted on wearing, even after her marriage to an officer of the navy, being herself sprung from farmer stock. It was also said that her father and mother had fallen victims in the massacres of Toulon, after the evacuation of the town. But all those stories varied in detail, and were on the whole very vague. Whenever she went abroad, Mrs. Réal was attended by her aunt, who aroused almost as much curiosity as herself, a magnificent old woman with upright carriage and an austere, brown, wrinkled face showing signs of past beauty. Catherine was also seen alone in the streets, where, as a matter of fact, people turned round to look after the thin and dignified figure, remarkable amongst the passers-by, whom she herself did not seem to see. About her escape from the massacres, most wonderful tales were told, and she acquired the reputation of a heroine. Arlette's aunt was known to frequent the churches, which were all open to the faithful now, carrying even into the house of God her sibylline aspect of a prophetess and her austere manner. It was not at the services that she was seen most. People would see her oftener in an empty nave, standing slim and as straight as an arrow, in the shade of a mighty pillar, as if making a call on the Creator of all things, with whom she had made her peace generously, and now would petition only for pardon and reconciliation with her niece Arlette. For Catherine for a long time remained uncertain of the future. She did not get rid of her involuntary awe of her niece as a selected object of God's wrath until towards the end of her life. There was also another soul for which she was concerned. The pursuit of the Tartan by the Emilia had been observed from various points of the islands that closed the roadstead of Hier, and the English ship had been seen from the Fort de la Vigie, opening fire on her chase. The result, though the two vessels soon ran out of sight, could not be a matter of doubt. There was also the story told by a coaster that got into Fréjus, of a tartan being fired on by a square-rigged man-of-war, but that apparently was the next day. All these rumors pointed one way, and were the foundation of the report made by Lieutenant Réal to the Toulon Admiralty, that Peyrol went out to sea in his tartan and was never seen again, was, of course, an incontrovertible fact. The day before the two women were to go back to Escampa Bar, Catherine approached a priest in the church of Saint-Marie-Majeur, a little unshaven fat man with a watery eye, in order to arrange for some masses to be said for the dead. "'But for whose soul are we to pray?' mumbled the priest in a wheezy low tone. "'Pray for the soul of Jean,' said Catherine. "'Yes, Jean. There is no other name.' Lieutenant Réal, wounded at Trafalgar, but escaping capture, retired with the rank of Capitaine de Frégate, and vanished from the eyes of the naval world in Toulon, and indeed from the world altogether. 
whatever sign brought him back to Escampabar on that momentous night was not meant to call him to his death, but to a quiet and retired life, obscure in a sense, but not devoid of dignity. In the course of years he became the mayor of the commune in that very same little village which had looked on Escampabar as the abode of iniquity, the sojourn of blood-drinkers and of wicked women. One of the earliest excitements breaking the monotony of the Escampabar life was the discovery at the bottom of the well, one dry year when the water got very low, of some considerable obstruction. After a lot of trouble in getting it up, the obstruction turned out to be a garment made of sailcloth, which had armholes and three horn buttons in front, and looked like a waistcoat. But it was lined, positively quilted, with a surprising quantity of gold pieces of various ages, coinages, and nationalities. Nobody but Peyrol could have put it there. Catherine was able to give the exact date, because she remembered seeing him doing something at the well on the very morning before he went out to sea with Michel, carrying off Chevola. Captain Real could guess easily the origin of that treasure, and he decided with his wife's approval to give it up to the government, as the hoard of a man who had died intestate, with no discoverable relations, and whose very name had been a matter of uncertainty even to himself. After that event, the uncertain name of Peyrol found itself oftener and oftener on Monsieur and Madame Royal's lips, on which before it was but seldom heard. Though the recollection of his white-headed, quiet, irresistible personality haunted every corner of the Escampabar fields. From that time they talked of him openly, as though he had come back to live again amongst them. Many years afterwards, one fine evening, Monsieur and Madame Réal, sitting on the bench outside the salle, the house had not been altered at all outside, except that it was now kept whitewashed, began to talk of that episode, and of the man who, coming from the seas, had crossed their lives to disappear at sea again. "'How did he get all that lot of gold?' wondered Madame Réal innocently. "'He could not possibly want it. And, Eugène, why should he have put it down there?' That, ma chère amie, said Réal, is not an easy question to answer. Men and women are not so simple as they seem. Even you, Fermier, he used to give his wife that name jocularly sometimes, are not so simple as some people would take you to be. I think that if Peyrol were here, he could not perhaps answer your question himself. And they went on, reminding each other in short phrases separated by long silences, of his peculiarities of person and behavior, when, above the slope leading down to Madrag, there appeared first the pointed ears and then the whole body of a very diminutive donkey of a light gray color with dark points. Two pieces of wood, strangely shaped, projected on each side of his body as far as his head, like very long shafts of a cart. But the donkey dragged no cart after him. He was carrying on his back, on a small pack saddle, the torso of a man who did not seem to have any legs. The little animal, beautifully groomed and with an intelligent and even impudent physiognomy, stopped in front of Monsieur and Madame Réal. The man, balancing himself cleverly on the pack saddle with his withered legs crossed in front of him, slipped off, disengaged his crutches from each side of the donkey smartly, propped himself on them, and with his open palm gave the animal a resounding thwack 
which sent it trotting into the yard. The cripple of the Majog, in his quality of Peyrol's friend, for the rover had often talked of him both to the women and to Lieutenant Real with great appreciation, C'est un homme, ça, had become a member of the Escampabar community. His employment was to run about the country on errands, most unfit, one would think, for a man without legs. But the donkey did all the walking, while the cripple supplied the sharp wits and an unfailing memory. The poor fellow, snatching off his hat and holding it with one hand alongside his right crutch, approached to render his account of the day in the simple words, "'Everything has been done as you ordered, madame,' then lingered, a privileged servant, familiar but respectful, attractive with his soft eyes, long face, and his pained smile. "'We were just talking of payroll,' remarked Captain Real. "'Ah, one could talk a long time of him,' said the cripple. He told me once that if I had been complete, with legs like everybody else, I suppose he meant, I would have made a good comrade away there in the distant seas. He had a great heart. Yes, murmured Madame Réal thoughtfully. Then, turning to her husband, she asked, What sort of man was he really, Eugène? Captain Réal remained silent. Did you ever ask yourself that question? she insisted. Yes, said Réal. But the only certain thing we can say of him is that he was not a bad Frenchman. Everything's in that, murmured the cripple, with fervent conviction, in the silence that fell upon Réal's words and Arlette's faint sigh of memory. The blue level of the Mediterranean, the charmer and the deceiver of audacious men, kept the secret of its fascination hugged to its calm breast the victims of all the wars, calamities, and tempests of its history, under the marvelous purity of the sunset sky. A few rosy clouds floated high up over the Estorel range. The breath of the evening breeze came to cool the heated rocks of Escampabar, and the mulberry tree, the only big tree on the head of the peninsula, standing like a sentinel at the gate of the yard, sighed faintly in a shudder of all its leaves, as if regretting the brother of the coast, the man of dark deeds, but of large heart, who often at noonday would lie down to sleep under its shade. End of section 18 End of The Rover by Joseph Conrad